cracks me up. Uh, it's a funny, funny show. Um, let me tell you about another story about a car. My dad has a 1969 Camaro RS. Uh, that actually isn't the exact car. It's, it's very much like his. His is white. That one is silver. But it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful machine. It has a big Chevy 350 V8 that rumbles. It has houndstooth interior. has a black vinyl top, Chevrolet rally wheels. I mean, it is such a sweet, sweet car. Now, that car, when it was new in 1969, cost about $3,500. My dad bought it in about 1994 from an 18-year-old kid, and he paid about $6,000 for it, and it was in really, really kind of bad shape. By the time he got it, it had seen its better days. It ran really rough, had a lot of rust around it. I don't think even all four wheels matched. The interior had been ripped. It, it was kind of in really bad shape. And over the course of five or six years, he methodically went through one aspect of the car after another and uh, focused on it and rebuilt it. Redid the interior, the engine, got the outside painted, got it to where today it, it is really an incredible looking machine. And in fact, today, there are people that would say it looks better today than it did the very first day that it was brand new. Now, here's why I tell you that story. In a lot of ways, I think that car is very similar to marriages. Most marriages, they start off when it's a brand new marriage. I mean, it's like a new car. It's, everything is pristine. It is just beautiful. There are no scratches. You can't see any flaws in it. And then as time goes by in a marriage, things just happen. Reality just sets in. And the thing that looks so beautiful and immaculate without any problems begins, you begin to see flaws in it. You begin to see things that aren't quite as nice or didn't at least look as nice at, as they did at first. And for a lot of marriages, when they hit that stage of where things just kind of aren't like they used to be. Some people just even bail on marriages, just put it up for sale, trade it in for a new one, whatever would be the case. And yet some marriages find a way to slowly over time address the issues and fix the issues and ask God's help for the issues and build and build and strengthen and deal with the complexities. And then you could look at someone who's been married or a couple that's been married 30, 40, 50 years, and you may say, their marriage is more beautiful today than it was the day that they got married. We start this new series today called The Real Marriages of the Old Testament, and we're going to be looking at um, several messages, or several marriages in Scripture, and you may be familiar with the story, and you may not be familiar with the story, but even if you are familiar with the characters, probably what you're going to find is we're going to dig into some of the aspects about their marriages that don't usually get covered when you hear the stories about these big names of these people um, throughout Scripture. And we're going to see some remarkable things. Because every marriage, whether it's a year old or 10 years old or 20 years old, deals with difficulties and trials along the way. And why is that? 
Because every marriage is made up of two imperfect people. And when you take two imperfect people and put them in a marriage, there is going to be issues. Now, we tend to think, well, um, you know, but my marriage is the exception. Or when I meet Mr. Right, it's going gonna, it's gonna to fix everything. And, and, and when thinking that way, we're just fooling ourselves. But every marriage can work through those difficulties, and I believe can become stronger and can become better and can be a beautiful, beautiful thing over time. Now, one of the things, and you've heard me talk about this before, is uh, there are some couples that I do some premarital counseling with here uh, at Exodus. And one of the things that I have them do in premarital counseling, the last step, is they have to go out and find three couples, and they have to interview those three couples and ask them questions. They have to find a couple that's been married three to five years, a couple that's been married 10 to 20 years, and they have to find a couple that's married 20 plus years, and they ask them a series of questions, get their response, and then we dialogue what their answers are. Same questions for each couple, but the whole purpose in me doing that is I want them to get a, a real honest look at marriage. And I don't want it to be a look at like the car that's on the dealer lot that looks so awesome and amazing, and yet when you buy it like a month later, you realize it's not nearly as amazing and making the payments aren't on it aren't near as fun as what it looked like when it was on the dealer's lot. Because if you're married, I want you to think back for a second of your honeymoon period. Maybe the first three months, maybe the first year, maybe the first two or three years. If you think back of that, about that time, everything was new, everything was exciting, everything was fresh. It was a fun experience, but if you've been married long enough, you realize it wasn't reality, was it? They call it a honeymoon because it's kind of not reality. It's kind of like you're blind to a lot of things. Everything's new and fresh, and it hasn't gotten old and routine and mundane yet. And it would be great if every marriage was just a constant honeymoon, and you could live happily ever after, just like they do in Hollywood and in the movies and in a fairy tale. But we all know that that doesn't really happen. So we start this message series today called The Real Marriages of the Old Testament, and we are going to kind of peel back the tent flaps of some marriages and kind of see what is really going on. And um, some of you may be surprised, not because of what we see and what, we hap- what happens, but because of how real the things that we're going to read about actually are and how applicable they are to us even thousands and thousands of years later. So we're going to start today in the book of Genesis, chapter 12, looking at the marriage of Abraham and Sarah. So if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to get it out and follow along. And we're going to be going through several different passages and primarily be in the book of Genesis chapter 12. We'll have the words up on the screen too, the scriptures, if you want to follow along that way. But um, be prepared to, to hear about or to read about today two flawed people who are trying to navigate life, love, faith, and kids. And it wasn't always pretty for Abraham and Sarah. And um, in this story, you, you're going to see it, the first part of this story, Abraham and Sarah are referred to as Abram and Sarai. And so when I read that, I'll probably still call them Abraham and Sarah, but uh, God changed their names, gave them names because of a spiritual event that happened later on in their lives. So that, that's kind of why there's a discrepancy there. But you may remember Abraham, because Abraham is most known for being the guy that God made this giant covenant with, this huge promise, right? And so even if you were a little kid and you went to vacation Bible school or in Sunday school, you learned 
learned about Abraham. And there was this covenant that God made with Abraham, and it basically was three different things in the covenant. God promised him land. God was going to give him the promised land. God promised him descendants. God said, I'm going to start my people, and they're going to come through your um, your life, your offspring. And then he promised him blessing and redemption. There were three components to that, to that promise. And what we're going to see this morning is that God was at work through the marriage of Abraham and Sarah, even after their honeymoon period was over. And what they discovered, what both of them discovered was that marriage was not about them, that marriage was about honoring God through them. And that's what they're going to see. So we're going to start this out in Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. And here's what we find in the story. At that time, a severe famine struck the land of Canaan, forcing Abram to go down to Egypt where he lived as a foreigner. Now we'll pause just for a second because the first nine verses of that chapter are the big promise that God made, the big covenant that God had made. So this is just shortly after God had made this big promise with Abraham. So you just need to keep that in mind. Verse 11, as Abraham was approaching the border of Egypt, Abram said to his wife, Sarai, look, you are a very beautiful woman. Now that's a good compliment for a husband, but listen to the rest of what he's going to say. Verse 12, when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Let's kill him. Then we can have her. And I don't know if that's the right accent, but I just kind (laughs) of threw that in there. Okay. Verse 13, So please tell them that you are my sister, and then they will spare my life and treat me well because of their interest in you. Now, it's kind of a weird thing to ask your wife to say, uh, let's pretend that you're my sister. Uh, But it really wasn't a complete lie. Later on in the book of Genesis, we, we find that Abraham and Sarah did have the same father. They had different mothers, but they did have the same father. So it it was just kind of a half-truth. And in Egypt, where they were going, what was customary is if you found someone that you wanted to marry, if a man found a woman that he wanted to marry, he had to come to financial terms with the family on what that marriage was actually going to cost. There was an amount of money. Now, we think that's a little weird, but that's just the way that it went back there. So Abraham figured, I will just set the price really high and say she's my sister, and so we'll just, we'll kind of get around the whole thing that way, and the price will be too high, and then they won't be interested. But the problem with the whole scheme was, who is this scheme trying to protect? Abraham, right? It's all about him. It's not really about his wife. It's not really about thinking about anyone else. He's just really interested in protecting himself. And nine verses earlier, God had made this incredible promise to him, and he has already kind of forgotten about it and kind of doing things his own way. Just living, you know, he's the one making the decisions. Verse 14 of chapter 12. And sure enough, when Abram arrived in Egypt, everyone noticed Sarai's beauty. When the palace officials saw her, they sang her praises to Pharaoh, their king, and Sarai was taken into the palace. Then Pharaoh gave Abram many gifts because of her. 
sheep, goats, cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. So far, so good. In fact, this plan is working out so well that like Abraham is getting like swag from it, right? I mean, he's like, he's like, dude, this is an awesome plan. I just say she's my sister. Like I'm getting animals and you know, all this stuff. I mean, they're giving me prizes and this is, this is, this is great. But um, even though he's put his wife in this horrible situation, at this point, he's thinking it's a good thing. Verse 17. But the Lord sent terrible plagues upon Pharaoh. And it's interesting to notice there, it's the Lord who sent the plagues. The Lord sent terrible plagues upon Pharaoh and his household because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Why? Because God was protecting what Abraham was trying to screw up in this story. Verse 18, so Pharaoh summoned Abram and accused him sharply. What have you done to me, he demanded. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister and allow me to take her as my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and get out of here. So rightly so, Pharaoh is a little miffed because he feels like he kind of got duped in this whole thing. So this man who was chosen by God to, to be the leader of, of God's chosen people, lied about his wife, and put her in harm's way. So it's pretty clear at this point that the honeymoon is over, don't you think? I mean, it's pretty safe to say. But God had not given up on helping Abraham realize that marriage was not about him. It was about giving God glory through him. So let's skip ahead four chapters now. I want you to look at Genesis chapter 16. Okay, verse 1. What we read in that story, it says that now Sarai, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him, and she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. Now, you can almost see the wheels in Sarah's mind starting to to turn. It had been a long time since God had promised them this child, and it had been a long time, and so she's like wondering, is it really going to happen? So she decides to take matters into her own hands. Now, before we are quick to judge Sarah for taking matters in her own hands. You and I are very often guilty of taking matters into our own hands, aren't we? Or at least I am. I mean, if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, when we face insurmountable problems, even though we know God's promise, it's very easy for us to say, well, I know like God said that, or I know the Bible promises that, or I know I've seen that, but I'm kind of getting tired of waiting around, so I'm just going to like step in and fix the problem. So whether it's wanting a child, whether it's looking for a job, selling a house, dealing with an issue with one of our kids, we can often be very quick to step in and just want to take over. And that's what Sarah does in this story. Look at verse 2. So Sarai said to Abram, the Lord has prevented me from having children, which wasn't exactly true, was it? God had said he was going to bring a child. She was just tired of waiting and the time hadn't yet come. So she says in the second part of verse two, go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have a child through her. Now there's an interesting idea, but it even gets better. And Abram agreed with Sarai's proposal. Well, yeah, he did. I mean, Abram's like, what did you did, did you ju- did you just say what I think you said? So he's thinking through this. He's like, my wife is telling me. He's like, wow. Okay, is this real? Am I gonna pinch myself? Is this really happening to me? So verse three. So Sarai, Abram's wife, 
took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abram as his wife. This happened 10 years after Abram had settled in the land of Canaan. So this is a decade after God had promised that they would have a child. So Abram had sexual relations with Hagar, and she became pregnant. So, so far, the plan has worked exactly as Sarah thought it would work. But the next word in there is the word but. But. And you knew that was coming, right? So Hagar becomes pregnant, but when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress, Sarai, with contempt. The NIV version says when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. The message version says when Hagar learned she was pregnant, she took down, or she looked down on her mistress. In other words, Hagar was now rubbing Sarah's nose in the fact that she could have a child and Sarah couldn't. And back in that culture, that was a really big deal for a woman. So Sarah thought this would be a great idea. We would now have a son, but now Hagar has turned and is rubbing Sarah's nose into it. So now we are developing a episode of Jerry Springer, okay? You can see it. It's just like starting to happen. It's just right around the corner. Verse five, then Sarah said to Abraham, this is all your fault, And every husband is thinking, Abe, I know exactly how you feel, man. I mean, like, everything somehow is my fault. Okay, so Sarah somehow switches this, that her idea now becomes Abraham's problem. It's all his fault. And, you know, obviously, Abraham probably made a stupid choice. But but this is what it says in the rest of the verse. I put you into my servant's arms, but now she's pregnant and she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show who's wrong. You are or me. So now Sarah is crying foul. She's like, you know, okay, uh, but, but that's not fair. This is not the way it was supposed to happen. I didn't want it to work out this way. And you and I are often so quick to blame others too, aren't we? Whatever it is we face, whatever we go through, it's really easy to take our situation and then blame someone else. So if you're driving down 37, 75 miles an hour and an officer pulls you over because you were in a 55 Whose fault is it? Well, the officer's fault, right? Because you're a law-abiding citizen and you just had somewhere that you needed to be. And so he shouldn't give you a ticket and shouldn't pick you out and isolate you. Isn't that kind of how we think? Or you're going down Walnut, you've got your big venti latte and driving your SUV and all the construction holes and you hit it and you pour the Starbucks all over yourself. Whose fault is that? Well, obviously the engineers who came up with the top for the cup didn't do a very good job and they made the coffee too hot and shouldn't have poured it on me. We're just very quick to blame blame other people. I like what Wayne Dyer says. Look at this quote. It's going to be up on the screen. All blame is a waste of time. No matter how much fault you find with another, and regardless of how much you blame him, it will not change you. The only blame... The only thing blame does to keep the focus off you when you are looking for external reasons to explain your unhappiness or frustration. That's exactly what Sarah does in this situation. Blame someone else for the thing that she created. And we see blame in athletics. We see it in politics. We see it in marriage. When two people who are supposed to be on the same team in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, it's still very easy to pass the blame of a circumstance onto our spouse because of our frustrations. And that's exactly what Sarah did. Now look at Abraham's response, verse 6. Abram replied, look, she's your servant. Now have you ever heard that in marriage? 
He's your son. You need to handle your daughter. It was your idea. Somehow this thing where two people come together in marriage and they're supposed to be a team, all of a sudden when things get tense, start looking at the other person and shifting all the responsibility and the blame upon them. So you go on in verse 6. It says, so deal with her as you see fit, Abraham said. So Abraham waves the white flag. Then Sarai treated Hagar harshly, so harshly that she finally ran away. Now let's talk about Abraham's response here because really I, I think um, he responded in a wrong way. I, instead of uh, helping the situation, basically he just waves a white flag and he's like, you know what, okay, it's your deal. She's your, she's your maidservant. It was your idea. You just do with it. Whatever you want to do, I'll just wipe my hands and, and stay clean. And yet as husbands, God says many times in the Bible that we are to be the spiritual leaders of our family. That's the responsibility that God has put on us. And yet many times as men, it is very easy for us just to wipe our hands, to not get involved, to be passive, to step back, to think, you know what, I don't want to be involved in this. And I think that's where Abraham made a mistake. His unwillingness to get involved, basically Hagar and Ishmael suffered just because Abraham just didn't want to get involved in it. It was easier to do whatever Sarah wanted than it was to say or do maybe what was right. So we move on in the story into chapter 8, and we see that in chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 18, and in chapter 18 we see God sent three angels to represent him and to talk to Abraham and to remind him of this promise that he made and all these things were going to come true. So if we look in Genesis chapter 18, starting with verse 10, this is what we read. Then one of them, talking about one of the angels, said, I will return to you about this time next year and your wife Sarah will have a son. Sarah was listening to the conversation from the tent. So Sarah is eavesdropping. Verse 11, Abraham and Sarah were both very old by this time and Sarah was long past the age of having children. So she laughed silently to herself and said, how could a worn out woman like me enjoy such pleasure, especially when my master, my husband is also old. So what we see is that Sarah had resigned herself that, to the fact that she was ever going to have a child. I mean, she basically is no spring chicken at this point, okay? Her biological clock has stopped ticking. It's quit working. She doesn't even know where the biological clock is anymore. So she's kind of realizing that, you know what, I don't really think this is ever going to happen. And so her laugh is not a like a ha-ha funny laugh. It's like a yeah, right laugh. You know what I mean? Can you see the difference? And so verse 13, it says, Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? Why did she say, Can an old woman like me have a baby? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? I will return about this time next year, and the Lord will have a son. Busted! So Sarah thought, she's just going to make a smirk. She's just going to sigh. She's just going to roll her eyes. It's no big deal. She's heard all this stuff about a kid before, but in her mind, it's just not going to happen. And God, through an angel, calls her out on it. And look at verse 15. This, I, I wish I could see what, how verse 15 played out. Sarah was afraid, and so she denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, but the Lord said, no, you did laugh. She's like, no, I didn't laugh. God says, no, you did laugh, which kind of reminds me of a new commercial that I've seen on TV. Have any of you seen the new um, Allstate commercial? Have you seen that? 
We got, Chip, why don't you play that? Because I want you to look at the guy's face at the end of it, okay? Watch this little commercial. So look at the guy's face at the end of the commercial. My bad. Tell me you have good insurance. Yep, I've got Allstate. Really? I was afraid you'd have some cut rate policy. No, nope. I've got the Allstate Value Plan. It's their most affordable car insurance, and you still get an Allstate agent. I too have Allstate. Same agent and everything. It's like we're connected. No, we're not. Yeah, we are. No, we're not. Okay. <laughs> That's the face I think the angel made to Sarah. She's like, I didn't laugh. He's like, yes, you did. I mean, come on, like, I mean, who are you arguing with? She's like, no, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. Yes, I did. And then, like, she gets that face right there. She's just like, you're busted, okay? You did. You did laugh, okay? Just say you laughed. You did laugh. But what Sarah was really saying in all of this was that I don't think things are really ever going to change. I'm resigned to that fact. I don't know that God can really do anything about the circumstances that I am in right now. She was saying, God, things are always going to be the way that they're going to be. And if you're honest with yourself, maybe in your marriage, maybe you have felt the very same way. Maybe you have thought to yourself, you know what? It's just going to be this way. Someone once said, there is no such thing as a hopeless situation. Only people who have grown hopeless about their situation. And God wants to you to know if you're in a marriage today that your marriage is not hopeless because you can change, your spouse can change, and God can change any of the circumstances that you're in. But you have to believe that God is still in the business of transformation, that God is still able to do those things, those impossible things. And in fact, Abraham and Sarah did learn that. Now, in Genesis chapter 20, if we skip a couple chapters ahead now, and we're, not, we're only going to look at a part of this story, but Abraham and Sarah travel to another country, and guess what Abraham asks Sarah to do before they enter the country? Let's pretend you're my sister. Okay, the same thing. It's like the same thing. He does the very same thing again as he did in chapter 12. This time, God intervenes with King Abimelech because he has a dream. And in this dream, God tells the king that Sarah is now, in fact, not Abraham's sister. So in Genesis 20, verse 9, this is what we read. Then Abimelech called for Abraham. What have you done to us, he demanded. What crime have I committed that deserves treatment like this, making me and my kingdom guilty of this great sin? No one should ever do what you have done, whatever possessed you to do such a thing. Now, it's interesting that we see Abraham, this man of faith, this pillar of the Old Testament, is now being called out by a pagan ruler for his morality, which is kind of interesting. I mean, in fact, it's really kind of honest, isn't it? I mean, we think of Abraham as being this, this, this incredible man of faith, and yet we see that he struggled in very, very many ways. Now, in chapter 21, and we're not going to be able to spend time there, but in chapter 21, uh, Abraham and Sarah finally get blessed with the child, and they name him Isaac, and you would have thought that after that they would live happily ever after, but after Isaac came along, there still was one more little episode. And it kind of reminds me of this story. It's an old story, but there were two guys, apparently, and they were talking to each other. And one guy says the, to the other guy, man, me and my wife, we fight all the time. And whenever we fight, my wife gets historical. 
And the guy says, no, you don't mean historical. You mean she gets hysterical. He's like, no, my wife gets historical because she goes back and remembers all the things that I've ever done over the last couple of decades and brings them up over and over and over again. What we're gonna see in this story is Sarah gets hysterical and historical all at the same time. Look at verse eight of Genesis 21. When Isaac grew up and was about to be weaned, Abraham prepared a huge feast to celebrate the occasion. But Sarah saw Ishmael, the son of Abraham and her Egyptian servant, Hagar, making fun of her son, Isaac. So she turned to Abraham and demanded, get rid of that slave woman and her son. He is not going to share an inheritance with my son, Isaac. I won't have it. Now, Sarah may have been justified in, in becoming angry uh, because of what was happening because her son was being made fun of, but she erred in the way that she confronted it and dealt with it with Abraham. And there's a couple things I think she erred on. The first thing that she did wrong was it wasn't the right place. They, they prepared this celebration. They have friends over. It's a big party. Everyone's there. And she did not choose the right place to bring this up because marital conflict deserves the right to happen in private. So when you and your spouse disagree, it deserves to happen in private, not in public. The second thing she did wrong is it wasn't the right time. Sarah picked an inappropriate time to really kind of bring this up because wise is the couple that deals with conflict in an appropriate time. Not at the office party, not at the Bible study, not during family Christmas, but at an appropriate time because timing is everything. The third thing Sarah did wrong was it wasn't with the right spirit. Look at verse 11 there in Genesis 21. It says, this upset Abraham very much because Ishmael was his son. I mean, this was the son that he had fathered. So even with all this dysfunction, Abraham still cared for his son. And maybe it was time for Hagar and Ishmael to be sent away. I mean, maybe that was the time. But the way that Sarah handled it did not strengthen their relationship. We read in Ephesians 4.26, don't sin by letting your anger control you. It doesn't honor God, it doesn't honor your spouse, and it doesn't honor your marriage when you publicly demean or humiliate your spouse. It just doesn't, doesn't help at all. Now, as bad as things were, Abraham and Sarah's marriage did turn a corner and get better in the later chapters of the book of Genesis. In fact, when we, we look at chapter 23, and Sarah died when she was 127 years old, and it's a very touching story because Abraham grieved deeply when Sarah died. Not because it was his perfect wife, not because they had lived happily ever after, not because their whole marriage was this honeymoon about good times, no, because that was his life partner. And because Abraham had learned that marriage was not about him. It was about honoring God through him. Now, I want to spend just a few minutes with some application by looking at this whole story of Abraham and Sarah and applying it to those of us in this room who are married, or if you're not married, maybe you will be married at some point in the future. So I think there are things that we can all glean from this. There are two things that I want to urge you to do out of this story. First, discover Remember and practice God's purpose for your marriage. Abraham and Sarah struggled with viewing their marriage the way God viewed it. They, they saw marriage as about their happiness and about their fulfillment. 
And if we're honest, many times we view marriage that way, right? It's about me being happy. It's about me being fulfilled. It's about what I can get out of this marriage. The fact is, Sarah probably always struggled throughout their marriage with assertiveness and jealousy. And Abraham, no doubt, throughout their marriage, struggled with coming up with these crazy, selfish, harebrained ideas that he always tended to come up with. Yet, in spite of their weaknesses, their marriage was more than just convenience. It was a commitment. Tim Keller, in his book on marriage, writes this definition. Marriage is for two spiritual friends to help each other on their journey to become the persons that God designed them to be. And in the story of Abraham and Sarah, at the end of their lives, we see that they finally start figuring that out. And remember what I told you earlier, marriage is not about you, it's about honoring Christ through you. So hold tightly to God's purpose for your marriage. Second thing I want to urge you to do today if you're married is discover, remember, and practice God's power in your marriage. You know, after decades of mistakes with Abraham and Sarah, um, in, in the later years of their life, they did, they finally got it right, and there were there's some things that they saw. They witnessed God's faithfulness through the blessing of their son Isaac. God was faithful to them. They showed their faithfulness when God asked them to sacrifice their son after he had been born, and they experienced God keeping his promise by fulfilling all the things that he had said in the very beginning that he was going to do. But none of those lessons or blessings, not a one of them, would have ever happened without patience, heartache, and frustration. And God wants to show his power within you and through your marriage, but it won't happen without perseverance, heartache, and doses of frustration. But your marriage isn't perfect because you're perfect. It isn't perfect because your spouse isn't perfect. It's only perfect because God takes it and makes it into this perfect thing of two imperfect people coming together into this beautiful thing. And God brought you together, and God can keep you together. And well after the honeymoon is over, God hasn't given up on you and God hasn't given up on the person that you're married to, and he still has hopes and plans for your marriage. And your relationship can be better, stronger, and more beautiful than ever if you will allow God and understand his purpose and understand his plan and his power for your marriage. Let me pray for you. God, I thank you for the story of Abraham and Sarah. I thank you for the honesty in it. Um, because I think all of us can look at it and um, we can see bits and pieces of ourselves in either one of those characters. Um, I thank you that we're able to share it, we're able to look at it and read about it. And Father, more importantly, I pray that we would learn from it. For those who are married in there, Father, I, I pray that they would see things in that story lessons in it that they can apply to their lives to make them a better husband and a better wife. And Father, for, for the person that finds themselves in a, ma in a marriage where they think, you know, this is just really um, beyond help. I'm just really frustrated. I don't really see any answers to this. I don't see any way out. I don't ever see it getting better. I pray that you would whisper to them that you are a God who is still able to bring transformation, that your power and um, the things that you can do um, 
are of no end when we trust and we put our hope in you. So I pray for each uh, couple in that way. Father, thank you for allowing us to see the story, and um, may you empower us to be able to be the husbands and wives that you call us to be. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. <laughs>